So the reading today is an adaptation of a Japanese folktale by a woman named Elisa Perriman. And I'm going to ask Joan to come on up and help me with this. The difference between heaven and hell. Long ago, there lived an old woman who had a wish. She wished more than anything to see for herself the difference between heaven and hell. The monks in the temple agreed to grant her request. They put a blindfold around her eyes and said, first, you shall see hell. When the blindfold was removed, the old woman was standing at the entrance to a great dining hall. The hall was full of round tables, each piled high with the most delicious foods, meats, vegetables, fruits, breads, and desserts of all kinds. The smells that reached her nose were wonderful. The old woman noticed that in hell there were people seated around those round tables. She saw that their bodies were thin and their faces were gaunt and creased with frustration. Each person held a spoon, a very long spoon, a very, very long spoon. They were so long that the people in hell could reach the food on those platters, but they could not get the food back to their mouths. As the old woman watched, she heard their hungry, desperate cries. I've seen enough, she said. Please show me heaven. And so again, the blindfold was put around her eyes, and the old woman heard, Now you shall see heaven. When the blindfold was removed, the old woman was confused. For there she stood again at the entrance to a great dining hall, filled with round tables, piled high with the same lavish feast. And again she saw that there were people sitting just out of arm's reach of the food with those very long spoons. But as the older woman looked closer, she noticed that the people in heaven were plump and had rosy, happy faces. As she watched, a joyous sound of laughter filled the air. And soon the old woman was laughing too, for she now understood the difference between heaven and hell for herself. The people in heaven were using those long spoons to feed each other. So when I asked Joan to help me, I had to kind of, I had to read the parable to her, and she said that's all I needed to say. So, uh, our closing hymn tonight. <laughs> but I think it's a, a, a great lesson. Um, and, you know, I, I've been speaking here. I've, I've, I've been a member here for about 15 years and spoken probably close to a dozen times up front. And every time I've done that, I usually wait. I'm kind of a just-in-time kind of guy. And I always wait until the last couple weeks to pull everything together and I always thought that was a weakness, but I've really come to kind of embrace that because inevitably when my eyes are open and my ears are paying attention, I always find something in those last few weeks that are relevant, similar to the hike that we took when we were in Asheville. Uh, and, and last week I sat in these pews and listened to a really great message by Sheldon Pratt about our faith, about Unitarian Universalism. And he said one of the reasons that UU is struggling, that we're not growing as we ought to be, is, is poor marketing. And as an example of that, he said that instead of providing answers, we provide questions. And so I looked again at the title of my sermon and agreed that I was as guilty as anyone else. I asked the question, heaven and hell, this life or the next? And so I thought briefly about changing that title to heaven and hell, this life and the next. thought I'd put an exclamation point behind that. Um, and perhaps if I had, there'd be more people in the pews today, but actually I'm really impressed with the number of people that came out on the, on the holiday weekend. So I did say this morning at about quarter to nine to Joan, kind of offhandedly, I'm going to 
change what I say today, and she kind of laughed because she didn't think I was serious, but actually I am. Um, in the Washington Post this morning on the front page, there was a story about a Muslim doctor in Minnesota um, who three years ago when he moved there, he was, he was embraced by this small town um, and, and really felt a part of the community. And since November has felt more and more anger, more and more suspicion, more and more um, hatred towards him for his beliefs. And the story was about his courage to speak to community gatherings and explain to them what Islam is and what his faith was all about. And for at least a couple of those, he, uh, in fact, one in one, he, he feared for his life and wore a bulletproof vest. And, and I feel really grateful that I am not in that position. Right? I'm going to talk about a lot of religions this morning um, without a fear of judgment, without the expectation that people will see that one is the right way and the rest are wrong. And instead of focusing on right or wrong, I think generally, in this, certainly in this congregation, in this state, we see the differences um, and we're objective about it. And at least I hope that you will be today um, and, and recognize that there's not one, uh, one path that individuals should follow, but many, and that they're all just difference, different and we should respect, respect and embrace those differences. Um, I have to say that I knew a lot less about various religions' views on heaven and hell than I thought I did. There's a lot of different perspectives out there. One thing that's interesting, though, is across all the religions I looked at, um, fire and flame was one of those um, consistent features of what people thought of as hell. Right? They didn't think of it as a cold place. They didn't think of it as a really bright place or a loud place. I thought of it as a very hot place. I don't know what that means, but there's something there that is kind of this consistent string as we go through some of the religions. Um, a, a little bit less pious than that is a conversation I heard, again, I know over the last two weeks on NPR with a comedian named Eddie Izzard. If you know Eddie Izzard at all, he's a little, he's, he's a little nuts, and I'm not going to try to repeat uh, the way he said things, but let me just read to you what he said. This is his view on, on heaven. He's talking about his deceased mother. Uh, he references his mom. Now, I don't believe in a God. I just think, unfortunately, that we live and then we die, and then that's it, kids. So I don't think mom could come back. I think she would have got a message back, you know? Surely one person would have gotten the message back over eons and eons of time, 10,000 years of civilization. Just one, one message, one cloud to pull aside and say, it's me, Janine, I died last Tuesday. Anyway, it's great. They get massages up here, and God's nice. He's a bit full of himself, but, but he's all right. They're, they're all hanging out up here. Everyone gets on. It's great. Be nice, and you'll end up here. If you don't, you go down, and it's smelly, and it's horrible, and it's all hot and cold at the same time. So that's how Eddie Izzard thinks of what happens after we die. I'm going to give you a, a, a relatively quick synopsis of some of the other world religions and cultures and their view of heaven and hell. Uh, and interestingly, another surprise for me, it, it's amazing to me how detailed they are about what's going to happen. Some of them, some of the religions are about what's going to happen after you die. I'll start with Christianity. Christian heaven is all about rejoicing before God. In the book of Revelation, where there's, again, a, a detailed description of, of what heaven's about, heaven is described uh, as a city called New Jerusalem. The city has a wall, a big, beautiful wall, a huge wall, made of precious stones not found on earth. It has 12 gates and 12 foundations, one for 
each disciple. There's a river that flows from God's throne with the water of life, and trees line the banks of the river and produce fruit. And believers will have God's name on their foreheads. Pain, tears, and death do not exist in the Christian heaven. And for Christians, there's only one thing you need to do to get to heaven, and that is believe in Jesus as your Savior. Uh, some of you have probably seen the sign that it's fairly ubiquitous at sporting events. It points to the passage in the Bible that says, all you need is faith. And that, quiz time, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Let me move to Judaism. You might think that they would be quite, the Jews would be quite clear about heaven and hell, but in fact it's a bit ambiguous. There's no clear difference, clear reference to heaven or afterlife in the Jewish scriptures. Over the years, Jews have come to believe in various versions of heaven, including that the true Messiah will come back to earth and will bring heaven to the righteous here. But Judaism in general is more concerned with how we live life in this world, much more so than the next. For Muslims, paradise in the afterlife is a garden where the faithful lie on couches in perfect weather, surrounded by bashful, dark-eyed virgins, 47 of them. And you drink from crystal goblets and silver vessels dressed in green silk and brocade and wearing silver bracelets. You get to paradise if the good you've done outweighs the bad and you follow the path described in the Quran. There is some question about the virgin thing, which doesn't really seem to fit with the rest of the description of heaven, and some believe that an ancient translator made a mistake. Uh, a fairly big one, as it turns out. Uh, and that the original text noted 47 fruits. So you can imagine the disappointment of many a young man when they got to heaven. Now, Eastern religions, such as Buddhism and Hinduism, don't really believe in the same kind of heaven that Western religions do. Instead, they believe in reincarnation and offer a release from the illusion and suffering in the present world. For Buddhists, this gets a little complicated. For Buddhists, the way to achieve a heavenly state called nirvana is to not desire it. One of the four noble truths of the Buddha is that suffering is caused by desire, the desire to have and the desire to be. Desire is a burning that keeps us caught in this web of illusion that is our ego. The Buddha taught that desire is a flame that burns us, causes suffering, and keeps us tied to the cycle of death and rebirth or reincarnation because the flame continues burning into the next life. What we hope for is nirvana or the, the extinguishing of that flame, which is also the end of suffering. And one more on heaven, Hindu. According to Hindu teachings, our actions connect us to this world of appearances, which is in fact an illusion. What is real is Brahman the ultimate reality that transcends our sensory experiences. Unfortunately, we live in ignorance of Brahman and act according to our illusions. This action causes us to participate in the cycle of death and rebirth, which is difficult to escape. Thus, if you can escape, escape your ignorance and realize that ultimately you are not you, but Brahman itself, then you can achieve release from the cycle of death and re rebirth. So some of those sound a bit complicated, as I imagine Christianity does um, for those who have grown up in the other faiths.
So while many religions offer, uh, in many religions, heaven offers hope, ideas of hell offer that other great motivator, fear. As with the view of heavens, of heaven, Jews have an ambiguous version of hell. The Hebrew Bible makes little mention of it, except for a place where the spirits of the dead reside. There is, however, the term Gehinom, which refers to a valley in which children were reportedly sacrificed to the god Moloch. Eventually, this valley became a refuse dump that was constantly burning, which provided a powerful metaphor for a place to send sinners. In later Judaism, hell is a place of punishment for the unbelievers, but it's temporary. It will probably stay there for more than a year. I always thought of afterlife in, in most religions, many religions, as being kind of timeless. And, and again, as I was looking through the different religions, it, it surprised me that there are actually time frames associated with, uh, with many stays in, in hell in particular. So the Jewish hell is a little more easily escapable than other hells. As one writer put it, we must go through a cycle of deep cleansing. Our soul is flung around in intense spiritual heat to rid it of any residue that may have gathered and to prepare it for entry into heaven. Of course, this whole process can be avoided if we truly regret the wrong we have done and make amends with the people we have hurt. We can leave this world with clean socks. Christian hell seems at one level to be a combination of the Jewish idea of eternal burning and the Greek Hades, where there is eternal punishment. In fact, the Greek world for hell in the New Testament is often Hades, and Jesus used the word Gehenna to indicate the place for sinners where the fire is not quenched and the snake does not die. Again, we can turn to the book of Revelation for some details. Revelation explains that those whose names are not found written in the book of life are thrown into the lake of fire. In fact, death and Hades themselves are thrown into the lake of fire in the end. In addition to the holy text, Dante uh, did much to embellish the Christian notion, notion of hell in the book Inferno, the first part of his book, The Divine Comedy. The Inferno tells the story, the journey of Dante through hell in the poem, and hell is depicted as nine concentric circles of torment located within the earth. It is the realm of those who have rejected spiritual values by leading to bestial appetites or violence or by perverting their human intellectual, uh, human intellects to fraud or malice against a fellow man. And a lot of uh, the way Christians talk about hell is actually based on, on the poem, um, uh, the book of the poem, The Inferno. For Muslims, the Quran usually speaks of heaven and hell in the same passage, perhaps in order to provide a dramatic contrast. Hell is often described as an evil resting place and the fire. But fire is just the beginning of the torment in hell because the fire is like a wall enclosing the wicked. And when they cry out, they're showered with water as hot as molten brass, which scalds their faces. It gets worse. The unbelievers wear garments of fire and are lashed with rods of iron if they try to escape. They're not, they are dragged back and told to taste the torment of the conflagration. Yeah, you don't want to go to Islamic hell. Now, I should say here that um, just as with Unitarian Universalist congregations, there are a lot of variations across the major religions, and this is 
um, for each of these, this is probably the, the traditional or the one that's most prominent in these religions, but there are many variations. So I'm going to get to Unitarian Universalists in just a minute, but just um, to touch on the Eastern religions for a moment, they also have a very different notion of, of hell. <clears throat> um, although in some sects of Hinduism, Buddhism, and Taoism, there are heavens and hells that are similar to the Western ideas. Hindu hell, however, is traditionally a continuation of life on earth called uh, uh, samsara. Samsara is the endless cycle of death and rebirth that is the result of our ignorance of the ultimate reality of the universe. One of the most detailed and elaborate depictions of the afterlife is from the Tibetan Buddhist text Bardo Thodo, or the Tibetan Book of the Dead. As the title suggests, the book deals with dying, or more accurately, with the state of between. There are many, between, uh, many betweens, birth and death, sleeping and waking, walking in trance, and others within the death-rebirth between. The book teaches that after death, the soul exists in the bardo for 49 days in between, and that can lead either to nirvana or back to rebirth. And one of the factors that influences the soul's ultimate location is the dying itself, a good death tends to push the soul toward enlightenment, while a bad death can move it to rebirth in the world. So Tibetan Buddhists spend a lot of time and energy in helping the dying. So that brings us to Unitarian Universalists. As you might anticipate, UUs don't have a doctrine that describes heaven and hell, nor a step-by-step -step description of how you get there. However, universalism at its core is the belief in universal reconciliation, the view that all human beings will ultimately be restored to a right relationship with God in heaven. For you use uh, that belief that a state of hell, oh, sorry, for you use the do believe that a state of hell exists, they tend to think that hell is not eternal, nor is it a place for punishment, but it's temporary and rehabilitative. So, as you can imagine, while UUs don't have a doctrine, they certainly have opinions. And the website of the UU Church in Nashville, New Hampshire, describes UU ideas about the afterlife in this way. Very few UUs believe in a continuing individualized existence after physical death. Even fewer believe in the physical existence of places called heaven or hell, where one goes after dying. We believe immortality manifests itself in the lives of those we affect during our lifetime. UU Minister of Forest Church has defined religion as our human response to the dual reality of being alive and having to die. Most UUs regard death as the final and total end of our existence. Rather than seeing this in a morbid or despairing sense, we view the finality of death as a compelling reason to live life as fully as possible. Although we regard death as the end of our conscious life, we hope that we will live on in the minds and hearts of those persons whose lives were enriched during our earthly life. There are a few things that strike me about this passage. First, while the other religions cite a doctrine or an official position, the language around the UU faith is different. Few UUs believe, or most UUs regard, and this, of course, reflects the approach that we take to the big questions. You're, told, you're not told what to believe. You are allowed and expected to develop your own belief. 
Second, there are two sentences in particular that resonate with me. First, we believe immortality manifests itself in the lives of those we affect during our lifetime. And second, we view the finality of death as a compelling reason to live our lives as fully as possible. Those two really resonated with me, and it makes me wonder if I was a UU before I became a UU. Uh, about 20 years ago, I was a member of the United Methodist Church in Herndon. And we spent a week in southern Virginia after a hurricane came through and devastated one of the small towns there. And we spent the week repairing houses. And every night we would go to the local United Methodist Church and, and the people there would serve us a nice uh, potluck dinner. Um, very gracious to us, very helpful to us. And one evening when I was there, I was kind of looking around the walls of the church and about every 15 feet there was a little plaque about that big. And it had the name of one of the past leaders in that church. And most of them were kind of between 1950 and 1975 or so. And I just remember thinking that these were leaders in the community. These were leaders in the church. And really the only thing left of them 25 years after they passed away was, A, this little plaque on the church, but more importantly, the impact that they had on the lives of the people in that community. And that's struck, stuck with me since then, that I feel um, a need, because I know that once I leave, the only thing that's left of me is what I've done while I was here. And perhaps there is no heaven and hell in the afterlife, and all that matters is this life. Um, a few weeks ago, our Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Ben Carson, caught some heat because he described poverty as a state of mind. For us here this morning, the relevant question is, are heaven and hell merely a state of mind? There is an old Zen parable that goes like this. A tough, brawny samurai once approached a Zen master who was deep in meditation. Impatient and discourteous, the samurai demanded in his husky voice, so accustomed to forcefully yelling, tell me the nature of heaven and hell. The Zen master opened his eyes, looked at the samurai in the face, and replied with a certain scorn, why should I answer to a shabby, disgusting, despondent slob like you, a worm like you? Do you think I should tell you anything? I can't stand you. Get out of my sight. I have no time for silly questions. The samurai could not bear these insults. Consumed by rage, he drew his sword and raised it to sever the master's head at once. Looking straight into the samurai's eyes, the Zen master tenderly declared, that's hell. The samurai froze. He immediately understood that anger had him in its grip. His mind had just created his own hell, one filled with resentment, hatred, self-defense, and fury. He realized that he was so deep in his torment that he was ready to kill somebody. The samurai's eyes filled with tears. Setting his sword aside, he put his palms together and bowed in gratitude for this insight. The Zen master gently acknowledged with a delicate smile, and that is heaven. So who has it right? Are heaven and hell places of reward and punishment that you experience after you die? Or are they a state of mind, how you perceive your surroundings and how you respond to them? Or are they marketing gimmicks developed by religious institutions to generate loyalty and income? Um, several years ago, I came across a series of books titled Conversations with God. They were written by a man named Neil Donald Walsh a man who had reached bottom in his life and found his way up. 
Walsh used the device in his book of a literal conversation with God. He would ask the question or make a statement and God would respond. And the book had a very big impact on how I viewed religion. And in hindsight, it was very UU. So I'm going to finish with a passage from Walsh's website that says much better than I could, in his, in, uh, than I could in my own words, how I think about this life and the next. Many humans have been told that what God wants is for life to be a school, a place of learning, a time of testing, and a brief and precious opportunity to migrate the soul back to heaven, back to God, whence it came. Many humans have also been told that when it's uh, that that is when life ends that the real joy begins. All of life should be considered a prelude, a forerunner, a platform upon which is built the soul's experience of eternity. Life should therefore be led with an eye toward the afterlife, for what is earned now will be experienced forever. Those who believe that getting to heaven is the ultimate purpose of life, and who truly and fervently believe that they can guarantee their entrance into heaven by doing certain things while on earth, will, of course, seek to do those things. They'll make sure that their sins are confessed regularly, that their absolutions are up to date, so that if they die suddenly, their soul will, will be ready for judgment day. They'll fast for hours, days, or weeks at a time, travel to pilgrimages, the distant holy places, go to church or temple or mosque or synagogue every week without fail, tithe 10% of their income, eat or not eat certain foods, wear or not wear certain clothing, say or not say certain words, and engage in all manner of rites and rituals. They'll obey the rules of, of their religion, honor the customs of their faith tradition, and follow the instructions of their spiritual leaders in order to demonstrate to God that they're worthy so that a place will be reserved for them in paradise. And Walsh continues, One day, humans will understand that life is not an ordeal during which the soul struggles to get back to God, but rather is an ongoing process by which the soul seeks to know God, then to grow, to expand, and to experience more of what it is. It will also be clear that this process never ends, but is experienced by the soul everlasting at different levels and in different life forms. Life will not be lived with an eye toward the afterlife, but with an eye toward what is being created, expressed, and experienced at many levels of perception in the holy moment of now. Humans will become increasingly aware that now is the only time there is. Getting to heaven will no longer be the ultimate purpose in life. Creating heaven wherever you are will be seen as the prime objective. To experience this, people will not have to confess sins or fast during daylight hours or travel on pilgrimages or tithe regularly or perform any ritual um, or uh, any ritual they may choose to do any of these things if it pleases them or helps to remind them of the relationship God or assist them in staying connected with a purpose. And Walsh concludes, we do not know how much longer our own life will go on. Our time on this planet could be over tomorrow. Because this is so, I want, for my part, to use every available moment, every minute, every second, to move as richly as I can, as fully as I can, into the highest expression of the greatest vision ever I held about who I am. I want to demonstrate heaven on earth, in me, through me, as me. Even if there is no heaven, even if I'm making it all up, can there be a better way to live, a more purposeful nicer way to move through the days and nights of one's own existence. And so I am not going to finish with a question, but a statement. There is no better way to live, a more purposeful, nicer way to move through the days and nights of one's existence than to make most of every day. Amen.